Sean Fay is a presenter known for her commentary on LGBTQ plus women's and mental health issues. She's the author of a 2021 book, um, which became an instant Sunday Times bestseller, The Transgender Issue. Um, and another book is due to follow in 2025. Thank you for coming on Axel Arigato Talks. Thank you for having me. I'm glad. So how is your day going so far? It's going pretty well. Um, I'm enjoying like, you know, I feel like I respond much better to warmer weather mm -hmm. and longer days. Also, I recently have become self-employed in the last year and so I don't have like, it's a Monday today and I don't have like fear of Mondays anymore because I work for myself. So if I don't do anything, only I, I suffer. See. So you don't have the Sunday scaries anymore? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I suffer real bad from the Sunday scaries and I soothe that with delivery. I'm terrible for delivery. I'm an appalling cook. I've become reliant. I live alone. I'm single. And it's just an excuse to order delivery because no one can see. If a tree yeah. falls in the forest, does anyone, <laughs> no one hears it. Did it actually fall? If I order delivery and yes. don't cook for five days in a row, no one does knows. anyone care? Yeah. Does anyone know? <laughs> you know, some, some people have an issue with, you know, apps like Grindr. Or for, you know, I've got friends of mine that have to delete Grindr. I have Just Eat, Delivery, Uber Eats. And when I'm going through a real low, I'm like, got to get rid of those. Yeah. You know, that's my version of a toxic well, app. That's interesting because I, yeah, I've been off dating apps really for the last seven months and it's actually been great. Um, partly because you mentioned my second book, it's about my love life and it's about the wreckage of my <laughs> past love life in part. And so I felt like it was good to not be attempting okay. whilst I'm in that and writing about the past and trying to analyze it. It's probably not the best time to be looking for someone new. Also, I'm a very busy person. <laughs> you are a very busy person, booked and busy. What made you get rid of the dating apps? <clears throat> I got rid of the dating apps because I feel like post, especially post COVID, I think the sort of gamification of dating, like turning it into a video game, yeah. particularly obviously I am unfortunately in the position of having to date predominantly heterosexual men. I feel like everyone's sort of got very used to just interacting with people on their phone. Mm. And no one really knows what they're looking for, including me last summer when I was on them. Um, I went through a breakup just before lockdown started in 2020. And it's just a source of constant frustration. And I feel like since I've come off them, I have a much more stable sense of myself, mm. my own attractiveness, my own like worth as a person that's not being constantly vied for by you know, strangers online. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I felt like I was in a bad pattern of only half using them and not really knowing what my intentions were or what other people's intentions were. So I wanted at least a kind of reset. And I feel like you're saying with the gamification of it, it's like a video game where you have an avatar, you know, you have your own profile, you know, Hinge, for example, you can choose a song or leave voice notes now. And it's like, you end up seeing yourself through a different lens, which actually is kind of contrived. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's that, there's also, well, do you know what though? I thought I'll come off dating apps and then I'll just like, it will open me up to meeting loads of fabulous people in real life. The old fashioned way. Yeah, exactly. The trouble I forgot there is that every man I spend my time with is gay. Right. <laughs> and I don't go into any situations with people who aren't gay. So, mm -hmm. so um, never mind. Oh God. Well, I want to, um, I want, really want to get into the book you released, which as I said, became a Sunday Times bestseller. It was, I think for our generation seminal and um, an incredible piece of work. I guess the overarching theme or the premise of it was that trans liberation will liberate everyone. And that, um, and what I wanna know about is, is a bit of unpacking towards that. Can you tell me about that statement? Yeah, um, so the book opens with um, the opening sentence is the liberation of trans people will benefit the lives of everyone in our society. Um, and the reason I said that was, um, 
Well, it was a bold opening statement because one of the things, the conversation around trans guys that's occurring uh, in the right-wing media and across the world really at the moment is constantly framing trans people as a nuisance or some kind of group that is like taking things away from society or as like a minority that is presenting society with difficult challenges. And I wanted to turn that on its head and actually present the case which I've always believed to be true, which is, yeah, is that the emancipation of trans people from all the forms of discrimination, harassment that they experience would really benefit everyone because the things that marginalize trans people are things that um, affect many different groups in society. So if mm. you're looking at like the structural issues like poverty, housing, um, harassment, violence, um, those are enacted by systems that discriminate against like wide varieties of underprivileged groups. Also, when we're talking about gender, frankly, like trans people are trying to emancipate themselves or live more freely within a very uh, restrictive gender binary that doesn't just negatively affect trans people. It affects us in unique and quite severe ways sometimes. But I think the gender binary and gendered expectations, obviously, well, they impose themselves on like all queer people, like cis LGB people, mm. um, who are all gender non-conforming to some degree, whether or not it's they sleep with the wrong person or they dress the wrong way. Pretty much all women, because we live in a very sexist, patriarchal society that's always tried to define what women are and should be. Um, but also, like even straight cis men are confined by gender and made very unhappy by gender roles in general. In know, which ways straight men are not doing well always? <laughs> <laughs> in which ways do you see that manifest? Well, I mean, obviously, I think there's been a much more like a healthier discussion opening up about men's mental health. So like um, the biggest killer of middle aged men is themselves. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that's never fully been looked at is that like there's something there about gendered expectations, about men being open about their own suffering. Obviously, as well, I think like, when we look at like gender based violence it tends, mm. unfortunately, the majority of people that might be perpetrators of that tend to be cis straight men. Um, and that's often because of psych like, abuse tends to be cyclical. Yeah. Um, and often, yeah, because people don't really have like an outlet for like working through and taking responsibility for negative feelings and experiences healthily. And yeah, I mean, we just talked about dating apps. I feel like there's a lot of pressure, just even subtle ways of like yeah. men, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that's, for example, yeah, dated men who have huge hangups about their sexuality. Like they might be attracted to like a trans mm -hmm. person, mm. but they're terrified about what their friends might think or their family might think. But so they have this conflict between like who they actually are who they're told they should be and what they actually want, you know? So totally. it's something to me that's been always plainly obvious that like the gender binary as it kind of currently works doesn't work for anyone. And what trans people are saying is that like, maybe we shouldn't be maintaining this frankly unhinged binary that we put like, <laughs> like two, two camps of humanity, entirety of humanity other. into, yeah. yeah. How, um, when you approached dating, was the concept of fetishization always there? And did you approach it with having your guard up? Uh, no, okay, <laughs> I, actually, I actually embraced fetishization. Oh, you do? Like, well, no, not now. But like when I started, I mean, it's funny because I'm writing about this in my second book. I mean, when I first transitioned, I, um, yeah, of course, like trans women tend to be fetishized. And what I, yeah, one of the difficult things that isn't necessarily always palatable is that I, there was a certain point, for example, early in my transition where I was being treated so badly by the rest of society that actually men who had sexual desire for me, even if it was fetishistic, it mm. at least felt like I was being desired for who I was. And so in some ways, I, I don't think that was always healthy for me or right. for them. Yeah. But um, 
you know, the reality is, is that like actually you can lean in sometimes. Uh, and not all of the desire is fetishistic, but like some of it can certainly be quite repressed and that you deal with a lot of men's shame. And I feel like one of the things that I have been working through in my 30s, therapeutically and stuff like that, is both the shame that's been imposed on me as a trans person since I was a child, but mm. also the fact that I have to carry the burden of other people's shame, whether that's boyfriends, whether that's extended family members, whether that's society at large, is mm. that like shame is a huge thing that I feel as a trans woman that I've had to like shoulder that burden for a lot of people. And I think that causes quite a lot of psychic injury. Yeah, definitely. Going back to the childhood and, and your um, journey to transition, what was it like growing up in Bristol? Um, I mean, Bristol is a nice place. I actually spent lockdown there. Um, and I discovered a reappreciation for it in lockdown. Growing mm -hmm. up in Bristol, my adolescence was quite an unhappy one looking back. Mm. Um, I got a scholarship when I was 11 to an, a private school, which obviously was a huge opportunity, but it was all boys. And obviously it's a very gender non-conforming and obviously turns out trans feminine child that was very conspicuous from when I started secondary school. And um, I was ostracized and bullied homophobically quite a lot. Um, mm. and really didn't feel like I fit in at all. Uh, and that made me quite a reserved, bookish, kind of shy adolescent. Mm. So growing up in Bristol, I guess like, I was quite ruthlessly academic, like invested my entire identity in academic performance, basically mm. tried to keep my head down as much as possible and invisibilize myself. Um, meanwhile, like leading quite an imaginative life in fantasy. Um, and I think that was a coping me mechanism, like a dissociation from, uh, yeah, the, the fear and terror around realizing that you're different and no yeah. one around you is uh, seeing the way that you're different. And did you feel like you had to wear a mask? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And that's something I've had to, yeah, review as I've gotten older is that by the time I got to university and I left Bristol, mm. I was like a huge people pleaser where I was like so um, keen to be whatever people wanted. And I think a lot of queer people have that trying to fit in is that like, yeah, I would wear a mask, anything. I would basically be whoever you wanted me to right. be and that at Very my own expense. Yeah, exactly. Um, that got me into trouble a little bit later on. <laughs> but um, I think yeah, it's I think quite it, a universal experience as well. I mean, mm. I had a girlfriend for like when I was 14 to 18. And, um, you know, with, then, as I'm sure you can agree, sometimes you go home and you think, I don't even know who I am anymore because I've just been performing all day. Yeah. And trying to get my English coursework in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, that lasted a lot longer than just my adolescence. That lasted, and yeah, until probably my 20s. Um, obviously, because, yeah, just in terms of personal relationships and who am I and what mm. my values are and who are the people that, like, I actually find it fulfilling to be around. But also, of course, uh, gender dysphoria um, and the lack of visibility around trans people in the way that, that exists now. Mm. When I was like 16, 17, 18, 19, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there was no positive representation of trans people at all. So I, I mean, I kind of tried to fit in as a gay guy. Mm. Um, and that was even more troubling in some ways because there's a coming out process for that. And there's something like a little bit, oh, I don't know, like a, like a gut punch when you realize like, oh, I've gone through all this and this is still wrong. Growing up, who, if anyone, did you look to as a bit of a, role model or someone that you kind of got some solace from? Um, 
Like mine was Lady Gaga. Yeah, I mean, I was a little monster as well. Okay. Yeah. Great. I mean, there is a there is a twink to transsexual Lady Gaga little monster pipeline. I think so. <laughs> yeah. And I'm part of it. <laughs> um, yeah, I was very much putting coke cans in my hair at one point. Love that. But yeah, I mean, like in general, it's very cliche. I've always been into pop music and pop mm. divas. I guess mm. Madonna was like an early one as well. I got very into Catholicism I'm from an Irish Catholic background in my teenage years, partly because of this repression and like seeing if I could cure myself with religion. But I mean, also. And you tried that? I mean, like, I, yeah, I mean, I was very, very religious and I really didn't want to be like queer in any way at one point, which I sort of discarded by the time I was 17. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it gave me a huge complex. Mm. But also, like, Catholicism is of a very camp religion oh and God, very, yeah. like, it's like full vaudeville, complete camp rock. Yeah. vibes, which I still carry through into my personal style now. So obviously Madonna with the Flaming Cross, as with like Lady Gaga and Alejandro. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, I love a little bit of Catholic camp even now. Okay. Um, I wanted to touch upon um, London being a safe space. It was for me, it was a bit of a, a refuge from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously been living in London for a while now. You went to Bristol during the pandemic, but where do you go to in London? Where's like a safe space for trans people? where you can go and feel totally comfortable? Right, well, I've had like two experiences of London. So I moved here initially in my mid, yeah, mid twenties, just before my mid twenties. And it was before I transitioned. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working as a lawyer. This was like my final years as a very gender non-conforming. Like, essentially I was gender fluid and there was no term like non-binary at the time. But the minute I heard the term non-binary, I was like, well, that's what I am at, at that time yeah. before I ultimately decided to medically transition. And yeah, I mean, I was living in London that time and I went out on the queer scene a lot. It was a little less trans inclusive then. Um, and that was like, I mean, it was, there was a positive experience to it because I really loved nightlife and I really loved going out. But um, there was a dark side to it too that took over. So like by the time I got to my like mid twenties, it was the four Ds, sadly none of them dick, which was like depression, dysphoria, drinking and drugs took over my life. Right. And uh, I've never I heard that before. <laughs> Oh, geez, right. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's just, I just coined it, babe. It's oh, okay, <laughs> so quick, write that down. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you have to have like quite a specific experience, I feel like, to, to tick them all. But yeah. Um, yeah, those things took over, realistically. And I was not a very happy person. Yeah, As a result a, of going out too much? Yeah, well, right. I mean, I basically, I struggled with addiction and I struggled with dysphoria and I struggled... Um, with depression uh -huh. and they were all connected obviously but also all kind of separate mm. and yeah and that's the trouble is that if you struggle with like, I was an addict so like going out on the queer scene and stuff like that like it took on the darker I, I'm all for people going out and having a fun time but obviously for me it went somewhere darker and it started to destroy my life dysphoria obviously was starting to catch up with me especially as I was getting older I was very androgynous when I was younger and I was getting more and more unhappy like in my physical body mm -hmm. and I also struggled a lot with depression so I I got to a point where I had a breakdown and I really didn't want to be here anymore. I know that's a cliche, but that's how a lot of trans people end up feeling. And so I, um, at that point, I like went back to Bristol for a bit. Um, so and like a re reset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I started to transition. I started to take steps basically to save my own life. And I had to get out of London to do that. I had to have a reset. 
And yeah, I had a very fearful relationship for a while because London didn't seem like a safe space to me because it had provided me with so much. It provided me with a lot of identity discovery, meeting new people, new experiences. And I'm actually now at a point where I'm grateful for them all. There was a time where it seemed like also like a place of excess and a place of danger. Well, there's a dark underbelly if you get sucked yeah, into the wrong places. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, as an older person now and a healthier person, someone that tries to lead, a healthier life, I feel like I've rediscovered London too, mm. is that... Um, Through a different lens. Yeah, time. exactly. Whether or not London is a safe space, there are safe spaces within London and there are more of them, especially for trans people. I mean, I think as well in the queer community, the queer scene has gotten a lot better acquainted in the last 10 years with how to be inclusive of trans people, whether that's nightlife, whether that's like, yeah, queer venues, mm -hmm. whether that's just media spaces. I still think there's a long way to go. But there's a bit of a mythology that like London is a perfect, like I remember, you know, in, in the early days of my, I guess my social transition and my medical transition, where I didn't blend in as much when I walked down the street and I seemed like a visibly gender non-conforming person and then a visibly trans person. Mm -hmm. I would get like street harassment. I would get people spitting at me in the face and I would get people throwing stuff at me. And that happened a couple of times in London and people were like, I can't believe that happens in London. It's like, uh, babe, it happens everywhere. And of course it happens in London. Like yeah. this idea that London is some metropolitan Mecca is not the reality for unfortunately a lot of gender non-conforming and trans people. And so I'm always keen to point that out when people are like, oh, it's like a haven, it's this cosmopolitan Mecca. There are some places where people love gender variants, yeah. like in drag, on a stage, in performance, in, fa in a fashion shoot, in the magazine. But do they care for like, I have good friends now who are trans creatives, trans models, trans artists working in London, and they might come and do a shoot, might come and do a podcast, but they need to be like, are you going to book me a cab home because I'm not safe to go back on public transport? Yeah. So they have this odd you know, dichotomy where they're being, yeah, like prized in some arenas sure. and then completely discarded at risk in others, and discarded yeah. in others. And so for me, yeah, unfortunately, I feel like for me, a lot of the ways in which I conform to gender now and conform to like palatable form of femininity was that was the compromise I made for being a public trans figure was that I wanted to be able to just blend in and not, you know, not be as maybe as Compared to how I used to dress sure. and present myself 10 years ago, sure. I look very boring when I walk down the street now, but the, but the prize I get for that, unfortunately, in quite like a binary obsessed society mm. is that I'm basically left alone. And um, yeah, I don't want to have to be talking with like a cab driver about my gender. Yeah. I don't really want to have to be like think, looking over my shoulder going to get a pint of milk. Because I've written a book about trans issues, I don't want the media to ask me about my surgical transition. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. I feel like my whole life has been like swaying between what's the line, what's the boundaries for me, yeah. about how much is like necessary for me to share with the world in order to feel like I'm seen and understood. And might, you know, indeed now like I'm in a position where I wonder if I could help other people mm -hmm. who are younger than me um, versus the fact that like, I've had some bad experiences with sharing too much Absolutely. and making myself vulnerable and people yeah. mistreat me on that basis. And through writing the books, um, did a lot of it stem from your lived experiences? Because for me, and um, the reason I wanted to get to know you better is I think the best way you can learn about um, our community is by listening to lived experiences as opposed to deducing it for themselves. Um, yeah, well, I mean, my, my first book, The Transgender Issue, um, it doesn't draw that much on my own personal experience. And the reason for that was that I felt like trans memoir and this like, um, yeah, confessional 
mode of writing for trans mm. women is kind of like this tell-all um, thing, particularly about transition, is like the, historically the only kind of like writing we've been allowed to do. And actually, if you look at like cis male political writers, they get to write in this detached authoritative tone where mm. they just comment objectively and they're not seen as like a subjective figure who has to confess all their trauma. And I wanted to kind of adopt that register writing about trans issues, which is like, yeah, I'm a trans person writing about trans issues. But that doesn't mean that I have to be confessional about myself. Yeah. Equally, though, the book does contain a lot of personal narratives that aren't mine. So I went out and interviewed a lot of people. The, also, you know, I'm a middle-class white trans person living in London. Like, as I say, like, today my life is not very hard relatively to what some trans people are going through. Mm. And I was like, actually, the people that don't get the media platforms I get are often the people having the hardest experience. And I had the connection, you know, via my work for um, LGBT charities and organizations over the years to like maybe find people whose voices don't get heard and use my platform to like elevate their voice. Yeah. So that's what I do in that book. And then my next book is, as I say, it's about this feeling uh, of feeling unlovable because mm -hmm. of internalized shame and the sort of uh, trans misogyny directed at trans women that makes us feel like we're unlovable as partners. That's something that's been more about the struggle, main struggle of my life post-transition, it's not really about my gender. It's about kind of just being a woman and trying to like make relationships work when you have like self-esteem issues. So I felt like that was a more interesting way of talking about how transness affects my experience mm. than just talking about like my struggles with dysphoria or whatever. Absolutely. I wanted to dive into the writing process with the transgender issue. Okay. Whether it was cathartic, whether it was arduous, I'm sure it was all of the above. And also the reaction when it came out, was it what you expected? Good question. Is it cathartic? No, I don't tend to find writing cathartic or therapeutic. I think um, writing, like all art, can be like almost at times slightly masochistic because you have to sit in the material, whether it's harmful, or upsetting, or whatever, in order to kind of do, yeah, to really like get to grips with it and arrange it in a in a way. I felt like um, I wrote the majority of the first draft of the book in the first lockdown. Right. I've been writing it since late 2018, but like March 2020 to like June 2020 was when I wrote the bulk of it. Right. And at that point, yeah, there's just so much material. I had to take on almost like quite a clinical, it's where the legal training helped, like <laughs> loyally kind of detachment about how I organized everything. And because of like my, as I said, I went through a breakup and mm. lost my entire social life thanks to lockdown. So it was just this like hyper focus mm. on one thing throughout that time. So in a way I found it actually a bit of a life raft for my mental health because it was a really sort of like singular project to focus yeah. on. In terms of um, when it came out and the reaction, mm. I found that quite overwhelming um, because of the like very toxic conversations happening around trans people in this country. I knew that it was going to throw me into the spotlight in a new way and elevate the degree of public profile I had. And there was a huge anxiety in the month before it came out. But what I've been really pleased by is that the reaction has been so positive. I have had so many, like, obviously, like the amount of readers, it's currently like sold, you know, like, over 30,000 copies and counting. So like, that's just a huge platform for people to be like hearing a sympathetic, um, account of trans lives and I've had like such lovely messages and mm. feedback and met people at events, young trans people, their families, people who knew nothing about this topic but like they enjoyed uh, getting to know more about it mm. and that like human contact at book signings is like Essential. really amazing. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed our human contact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Thank you too. so much for Thank coming you. on Accelerator. Thank you for having me.